This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers to hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Both of my guests today are pioneers. In 1973, Erica Zhang's frank treatment of women's sexual desires in her novel, Fear of Flying, was as controversial as it was revolutionary. Two years later, in 1975, Lorne Michaels created Saturday Night Live, a television show that was and still is the biggest influence on American comedy today. Now here it is, as you can see, verifiably, it is a check made out to you, The Beatles, for $3,000. All you have to do is sing three Beatle tunes. She loves you, yeah, 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 that's $1,000 right there. Lorne Michaels has launched the careers of John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Gilda Radner, and Bill Murray. Then there's Chris Farley, Will Farrell, Tina Fey, Kristen Wiig, and Chris Rock. I always say I haven't been, you know, I haven't been poor a day since I met Lauren Michaels. I've never Me been neither. broke since I met Lauren Michaels. Both on television and in film, Michaels is the kingmaker of comic actors. He's also a rare producer in that he's truly involved in all aspects of production. Yet he says when he does his job right, he leaves no fingerprints behind. Lorne Michaels' life in comedy began in the late 1960s when he worked at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in Toronto alongside his writing and performing partner, Hart Pomerantz. But it wasn't television. Lorne Michaels started out in radio. It was a show called Five Nights a Week at this time, and we did political satire. Every week we thought we were potentially bringing down the government, and the fact that no one was listening. Didn't occur to us for at least the first year, but we loved doing it. It was just a chance to write and perform every week. 
Now, where did that begin, though, for you? Did you go to school for that, or did you? No, 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 no. I went when I graduated from University of Toronto. I had taken nothing that was of any practical no drama, use. no theater, no writing. Oh, I'd, I'd worked in the theater there, but it was more. There was a a review that University College UC Follies, which was a satirical review, music and comedy, and I'd co-wrote that and directed it. So so from the beginning, I mean, even before you go into CBC Radio and before Hart Pomerantz, I mean, right. even in college, what you characterize as satiric review, comedy review, yeah. that was your bailiwick from the yeah, beginning. Yeah, I think it was what was in the air at the time. It was just the beginning of the questioning of authority, which was the year I did it was 1964. We were no longer talking about World War II. In the first part of my childhood, that's all anyone talked about. It was pretty much the gloom of that hung over most of the 50s. The survival of that. Yeah, and then we, television came into our lives and and everything changed. And so with the CBC, how long are the radio years? Uh, The radio years, think three years. And then we began writing for comedians, uh, Woody Allen and Joan Rivers and a little bit Dick Cabot. But how do you get into that door? Hart, that? Hart did that. He was very good at approaching people. We would come down to New York to write for people. And Woody who, who was incredibly uh, generous and encouraging. And we had no impact at all on his career, but he was very helpful. Then we got hired on a television show in 1968 as writers called The Beautiful Phyllis Diller Show, <laughs> and uh, which was a variety show at NBC in Burbank. And then from there, when that was canceled, we were hired on Laugh-In, which was in its first season. For George. For George Slaughter, yeah. What was the dynamic when you go to Los Angeles in the late 60s well, and you're writing for network television? Did you feel like that was... It wasn't at all the romantic idea of what I thought uh, being right. in show business would be. Well, on Laugh-In, the writers would write, and then it would be edited by a, a head writer, and then we did not go to the read-through. We were at, at, at a motel in Burbank, uh, and we would all have lunch together, and that was fun. And you didn't even have, lunch, have offices. No, we had offices, but they were in a motel. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which was, you know, it was the boom period of Burbank. Uh-huh. And uh, so it was the number one show and on one level it was like the greatest credit you could have and it certainly did wonders for you know like self-image and career but it wasn't fun you'd write uh, you know monologues for dan and dick who were really nice to us did you get to go to the tapings of the show we'd go to the studio if they were doing the monologues and they would read it from the cards they would see it for the first they, they time. They were some of the most shameless card readers in history. I <laughs> no, remember that show. they also just, yeah. they would just see it for the first time yeah. on the cards. They were like Dean Martin. They did not want their work to in, in any way interfere with their life. Yeah. We worked there for a year. And then I got a call from the head of the CBC asking what it would take to bring us back to do shows. You were still with Hart. On then. television, yeah. Right. And that's where I learned how to do television. Why do you say that? Because I spent a huge chunk of my 20s, you know, in an editing room. We would shoot in the studio. We'd be in front of an audience. and then What we, show were you doing? It was called The Hart and Lorne Terrific Hour. Right. And, and the uh, two of you that were the... We were, were the, the stars. Right, and there was a of that cast. Show. Yeah. And there was, you know, an ensemble and a musical guest. James Taylor was on one. 
Cat Stevens. Is that where you birthed the idea for the other show that you eventually wound up doing? I don't know whether, you know, there was a real form then called Variety, and it was Comedy Variety, and it had, you know, music and comedy, and we would perform in front of an audience, but mostly it was built in the editing room in the way that Laugh-In was. I remember that we came out of the first show with like 16 hours worth of tape. And I, I met with the editor. He said, why don't we just watch it? So we watched the first four hours. We were discussing a sketch. He said, I think in that piece, we could pull out that part. And I was still thinking script. I wasn't in any way thinking visually. And he said, no, your arm there is, is by your temple. And then uh, you put it down. And he was looking for continuity. He was an editor. He right. actually saw it. I said, how did you do that? And he said, I can teach your eye to see. Right. And he did. I learned how things are put together and how, what to look for in composition and how to make something work and the role that sound played. Because it's all radio with pictures. Nobody cared about sound then. When we first did SNL, the first five years, it was a boom. When you see Elvis on Ed Sullivan him and the Jordanaires, it's just a boom. Right. They got what they got. We have better sound on this interview than I had in the first 20 years of my career. And what I realized then about myself is that I'm much more interested in the production than I am in performing. What changed for you? Uh, Many people would, go the other way. I saw it in the editing room one night. I looked at myself before a take. I see my eyes checking the lighting, seeing where the cameras are in terms of their angles. And, and you're seeing a guy who all his instincts are technical and directorial and just and kind of look, Yeah, and I'm, I'm seeing a guy who's preoccupied and then the slate happens and then there's this smiling Artificial, guy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, snap too. Not artificial, I'm sure I was sincerely well, it's all smiling. Artificial. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. yeah. I assure you. Hollow, all, yeah, yeah, that's what it was. <laughs> In my opinion, <laughs> speaking for myself, it's all artificial. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We, 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 we reached I, out I had the find. same experience when I was on stage when I was at University of Toronto in the theater there. I was in the middle of a scene with an actor, and it was exciting to be on stage and all that, but I looked in his eyes, and I realized, oh, he's actually that guy. You know, I knew he's how to do my lines with some charm, but he actually had he's become the character. Right. Yeah, which right. I thought, oh, I see. That's what actors are. Right. They actually can do that. You know, whereas well, I some. was... Some. Some. Yes. For me, it was like, it was fun to be in shows, and I'd done them at summer camp, and I'd done them in high school, and... and uh, but you had a pure instinct... At that time, where you just said, "There's this other thing I'd rather be doing." That I was more interested, and, and, and you in, walked yeah. away. So, so you, so you ended that situation there. Yeah. Well, in Canada, there was still a kind of national self-loathing, best expressed by the then head of the CBC. We were slow in getting our start dates for production for the next season, and uh, I had been offered by Sandy Wernick and Bernie Brillstein, who I'd met when I was working in California agent and manager, respectively. They said, do you want to come back and work on a Burns and Shriver summer show? I like uh, that. For like, I love that. Yeah, they were, and they yeah. were funny. And it was like smart. 13 shows in 10 weeks. I went to the, uh, the head of the department at the CBC, and I said, I have this other offer, but I will stay here. At the time, I was caught up in the idea that I would be of the first generation of Canadian artists who would be able to stay in Canada. 
Why is that? Why did you feel that? Because everyone had always left. And the moment that you left in Canada, people started to treat you differently. And I thought, well, that's idiotic. We should be, we're evolved enough, we should be able to stay here and work here. The head of the CBC that I was working for said, I said, I have this offer and it's just for, you know, 10 weeks. He said, well, if you're that good, why are you here? And I thought, I want to be here. That, you know, and then I realized. you could never fight against. Yeah. And also I, I realized, is Van Gogh a Dutch painter? He really painted in France. And I thought, oh, I see. So <laughs> nationalism isn't the best way to, you know, you sure. go where the work is. Sure. So I went out and I did that. And then I came back. Uh, Even as we're talking about Canada, your accent just came back. You just said, well, I went out. Well, yeah, you probably amazing. drips in and out. Yeah. Yeah. I realized I'd come to the end of that period, and I moved back to California in 1972, and I lived at the Chateau Marmont till I moved here, which is 75. I had my 30th birthday in the lobby of the Chateau Marmont, which hadn't had a party then. I believe since uh, Dorothy Barry Parker Moore. lived okay. there. Yeah, so... Um, you have a real fondness for Los Angeles. Yeah, I love Los Angeles. You have a, yeah, yeah, you have a very, very warm spot for Los Angeles, and you who are... And for Uber London, New Yorker. Too. Yes. The nice part about being Canadian is you don't have to make that decision. You know, you're in California, and it's there's grass in February, and the sun is shining. You go, this is fantastic. But if you're from New York, then L.A. becomes like, well, no, you know, it becomes that. It's... A lot of people get an entire career out of Well, I think that people, the <clears throat> that's true, and I've been very guilty of that myself. The thing about Los Angeles is if you do it in your 20s, you can find and understand Sepulveda, which is if you grow up in a city with a grid, you're going, yeah. well, so what do you mean? Yeah. This crosses Wilshire? And yeah. then it, then yeah. it, it, if it you're on that 10 Pico. freeway and you get off at Robertson <laughs> you, and, you, and you think you're up near the Beverly Center, exactly. you're wrong. Yes, exactly. It takes and, a lot and, of Thomas guides to But when you're out. in your 20s, you're going to a lot of parties where you're just following somebody or somebody gives you direction. And this is at a time, it's hard to recall, but it's pre-GPS. No, no one wants to learn where they're going yeah. anymore. But Anyway, I had a very happy time there. And I worked for Lily Tomlin, and I wrote on her show, which was like 10 or 12 weeks. And at the end of it, it was time to go back to Canada, and I realized I wasn't... Visa-wise. I wasn't going back. No, it wasn't that. It was that the CBC wanted me to do something, but they wanted me back six months in advance. It was still that nagging, I'm going to be the Norman Lear of Canada yeah, yeah, thing. Or no, not even Norman Lear. I think it was just that you'd be able to work there. But here's what I realized without Malcolm Gladwell, who's also Canadian, articulating it because we didn't have the benefit of that then. It's the 10,000 hours. In doing 12 shows in 10 weeks, working at that pace, you get better. In Canada, working on a show every four months or five months, you overthink everything. There's so much at stake. And there was something about working at that pace and working in a system that was really clear cut. Like if the numbers were there, and you had ratings, then you were a hit. And if they weren't there, then you were a flop. And at that point in my life, I kind of needed clarity, which is one of the reasons I'm drawn to comedy, because you're trying really hard to make people laugh. If they don't laugh, it's really it's binary. clear. binary. Yeah, yeah. It works or it doesn't work. Yeah. So I do Lily Tomlin's show. It gets nominated for an Emmy. It was a pilot special for a series. 
and I am co-producing with Jane Wagner. We spent forever on it, and then at the end, it didn't get picked up. But Dick Ebersol, who was the new, newly appointed head of late night, had come from ABC Sports, and had met Herb Schlosser on a plane, and by the time they landed, he was the director of late night television. And he had this idea of doing many pilots in late night, using late night to be a testing ground for primetime. I agreed to do one for Dick. And I was, as I said, living at the Marmont. And I came home one night, two o'clock in the morning, which was not unusual for me. And uh, there was a message from Dick. Can you be at the polo lounge at seven o'clock in the morning for breakfast? No better for me then than it is now. And I went, um, uh, okay, what's it about? And he said, uh, they decided to do one show as opposed to 20 pilots. And yours is one of the ones that they're, and they all want to meet you. So I came and it was Dick and the head of programming, the head of research, and the head of talent. I could kind of tell that they were like, tribal elders in a way they were just sort of looking at me like is he all right you know it was just basically an approval process yep. but i seemed normal enough and was i you know trouble i had long someone hair. you could hand yeah, that's interesting because yeah. they, cause that's twas ever thus in the business yeah. where i mean talent is not the only coin of the realm oh totally they want to realize can we hand you a lot of money and you're yeah, gonna get and, the job and done. will you does he you seem like up? a flake or yeah. whatever and i and i was uh, just turned 30 but I did have credits, and I had sure. been nominated for stuff, and Dick called me, and he said it went well, and then they wanted me to fly to New York, and to... How'd you feel about that? I was excited by it. But Herb Schlosser, who had a, a very romantic notion of, of production in New York, thought it should be live. Well, <laughs> um, I'd never done live, right. except for radio. And I said, What was everybody else in the processing? Was he the lone voice? He was the lone for- voice. He decided that it should be an 8H, because 8H was the big NBC studio, and it was lying vacant. And all of the production had moved to L.A. All Variety was in L.A. Cars and everything. All of that crap music hall, all of those Variety series, which were done in New York in this building, was all in Everything Burbank. went to yeah. Los Angeles, except so, daytime. Yeah, exactly. For me, live meant this, no pilot. Having done three pilots that everybody thought were great, but then somewhere in the process of making a pilot, all your most conservative instincts come out and you find yourself doing the thing that you think is going to be, it's like a college essay. It isn't what you really think or feel, it's what you think will get you in or get you on the air. So the idea that I could do a show in which the audience would see it at the same time as the network was thrilling. And also I was at a point in my career where I really thought I had nothing to lose. So I was going to take one more shot at television. I was going to see if I could do it the way I wanted to do it. And I pretty much did. The very first broadcast of the show live uh-huh. was when? Uh, In October September ele- October 11th, 1975. October 11th, 1975 yeah. is the first broadcast of the show. And was the structure virtually the same it is now? Full the, dress the, at 8 o'clock? The, yeah, that part was all, all the same. same. Although I think for the first show, we did a dress rehearsal with the audience on Friday night. Oh. Just so that we'd have an extra one, because we'd never actually done anything. Right. The crew was like an original old New York crew. They were all mildly overweight, 
they had donuts. We had crudite because we were from California. Right. Um, and Jets jackets on. Yeah. And until we saw them move the cameras around in the way that they could because they knew that that world. Yeah. Uh, I once did a show at CBS in a, their big studio, and they have no tradition of this over at CBS. And I realized when I'd taken the tour that all the cameras had stools beside them. It was only later when I realized the show was a complete mess. Oh, right. They haven't moved cameras there. They just sort of aimed it at Cronkite for the last 40 years. Right. They set up their camera, and then they sit on their stool. Right. The 8H crew, that crane flew around the studio. Right. They learned that we knew what we were doing in terms of the content. and uh, They, they sensed there was a fit there. Yeah. This yeah. was going to be interesting for them as well. Exactly. This wasn't something at a desk. And, and work was camera. coming back to New York. There's a wonderful story when Eugene Lee, who's the designer I hired, who had just done Candide on Broadway. We did the very first set, you know, and it was like a $200,000 set. I couldn't get approval. Like, they wouldn't authorize the budget for it. I went up to Herb Schlosser's office. I just assumed, being Canadian, that I was just supposed to do the right thing and, and make a show that he would be proud of since he had authorized it. So we took it to his office. It was a little model, and I don't think he'd ever seen a model. And suddenly we're <laughs> moving little cameras around and all that. And, and he said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, they, it's expensive. And they oh, fine. And we got the approval. And it was very paternal in the best sense of it. But Eugene had a very clear sense of what he wanted. We were showing New York City as it then was, which was kind of in decay and crumbling. Yes. So when Herb came down to the studio the first time to see it and looked at the cracked paint, you know, thing which was where all the money was, of course, in terms of getting that exactly right, he said, I can't, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I just thought the shop did this. You know, because he just assumed <laughs> it was a really bad we, we have job. people who... <laughs> yeah, no, it was just that yeah. nobody knew whether production could gear up again in New York. And, of course, it did and, and uh, still does. So when you do the show, uh -huh. October 11th, 1975, the first show uh -huh. is broadcast live. It yes. airs. Yes. And when it's over, describe how you feel after the very first show. I was the same way then that I am now. I only see the mistakes, and I tend to wear that up until about the second drink at the party. Even last week's show takes me really through midway through Sunday. It used to take me a couple days. I can get over it now in a day. Because you're always hoping that everything's going to work the way you were hoping it was going right. to work. You know, you and conceive you, of something. Yeah, and you see Come somebody Wednesday enter on, you know, on the left foot instead of the right foot, or the camera cut is late, or that cue gets screwed up, yeah. or that, or somebody it's stumbles that guy who right before the slate was was yeah. looking at things. Yeah, never. He's still here. He's not yeah, going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Coming up, Lauren Michaels learns to fire people. I had to accept that some people were not going to make it and that I'd better deal with that when it happened as opposed to just pretending... Painful but unavoidable. Yeah. Yes, and so I learned how to be a boss. Ooh. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. 
In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian Cocktail Maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. This is Here's the Thing. I'm Alec Baldwin, back with Lorne Michaels in his corner office at Rockefeller Center, 17 floors above the ice skating rink. He moved into this office when Saturday Night Live premiered in 1975. And most of the furniture is exactly the same. Most of the furniture is exactly the same. Uh The joke is we hope that the people who run the network never really find out where this office is and how good you have it here. Well, you know, this desk, we didn't have a budget for that, so there was a, a maintenance guy here who said, well, there's a lot of furniture, <laughs> you know, that's in storage. So we said, can sure. we see it? So it was yeah. all the stuff in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And this a desk box of batons for Toscanini. to the then head of programming. And in the desk was a couple copies of, like, the racing form and Jellucil and Maalox. And I thought, <laughs> what am I getting myself into? It was so, it was the reverse of kind of holistic view yeah. of California, which I'd come here with, yeah. Now, you look at the board, for those people who don't know, the arc of the whole season is on this infamous cork board on the wall. Right. And there are the dates of each broadcast, the names of the confirmed uh, hosts, some prospective hosts, and their musical guests and so forth. Uh-huh. And the names of the people are still, not all of them, but many of them, the biggest names in the business. The biggest names in the business are coming here 30-something years later to host the show, Ben Stiller and Melissa McCarthy won the the Emmy Award, and Katy Perry's coming, and Jimmy Fallon, who's obviously double-dipping on your payroll, yes. uh, Jonah Hill. I mean, the people that are the biggest names in the business are still coming here to host the show. Why do you think that that stayed that way? What? Well, I think, first of all, the best part is host. You get the best parts in most scenes, and we work really, really hard. Tonight because it's Tuesday, I will leave here probably around 3, 
I used to do what the younger ones do, which was pretty much go through the night, but I don't anymore. Yeah, neither do I. No. And yeah. and I go... I used to sing it with Smigel till three in the morning. Yeah, and, exactly. And, yeah, with those guys. And you and go... Conan. And I go, right, okay, and... Now I look at them, I go, you good? They're yeah. like, yeah, I'm like, I'm good. And yeah. I go home, one o'clock. And that's the commitment to it being the best it possibly can be. Uh, but I think also to inject my own perspective, having done it many times. Many, many times. Many, many times. Possibly um, too many times. Well, but possibly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there is, that's out there. People, yeah, yeah. people do feel that yeah. way. But, that, um, that was just um, me tweeting. The, yeah. This replaces a live component that is missing in most people's careers. They don't do theater, a yeah. lot of them. This is a chance for them to have a kind of a, it's, it's much more loose and kind of deconstructed and, and, and it can get a little sloppy if they're not like spot on and rehearsed. Well, it, doesn't have the, it doesn't have the kind of a, the gleaming perfection of movie making. No, and, and also uh, uh, Seth Meyers, Norm MacDonald was at the show on Saturday was at, and mm. so we were sitting at the party and, and Seth pointed out that Norm had given an interview somewhere recently where he's talking about the show and he said in what I thought was a, a nice way it's now the only place left where you can be bad you know there's no laugh track when something doesn't work it's such a clear yeah. uh, silence yeah. and whereas you walk out of a situation comedy in front of a live audience they're already cheering yeah you know even the theater they're, they're now, not taking any chances uh, the theater people stand the audience thinks they're supposed to do a standing ovation right. You know, and you go... Reflexively. Yeah. For a stand-up comic talent like Norm, I think one thing he might be reacting to is it gives people, the hosts, whether they are comic performers or not, it gives them the recreation of like a club, being in a club. Yeah. And it's stripped down so that it's only at the end talent writing into a lens. There's no spectacle. We don't have, you know, much of a wide shot. Yeah. You're watching pure performance. Yeah. And no, for people to be able to soar like that and... When you see it happen, it is always amazing. You know, amazing to be standing there, being me, having seen it as many times as I have. And the fact that every week we don't know how it's going to turn out, and the fact that I'm still as scared as I am every dress rehearsal. And honestly, I don't mean like we'll be drummed out of the business. I just mean that it is part of the process that people have to be bad before they can be good. When we have a great dresser, so when the audience is way too hot, invariably something gets lost on air. When you come and do the show, um, I've never felt more violated yeah, than well, by the writers the, of your that's show. That's the original design. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've come yeah. on here, you know, seemingly weeks after I got divorced, and Bill Clinton, a.k.a. Daryl Hammond, is walking yeah. out telling me to put my oars in the water and set sail for the island of Punani with him. <laughs> Yes. And uh, yeah, so I'm yeah. just wondering, I mean, do you, do you find that that's a, a big part of their creative success is your, is your complete Yeah, I think there's something they expect us to be honest. Yeah. They, they expect us it? to say what, <laughs> what's actually happening. There's very little protection. Have you always been this irreverent your whole life? Yeah, probably. You have been, yeah. yeah. So this was really just meant to be. Yeah. What's the first movie you made post-1975? I guess Wayne's World. You know, uh, Three Amigos wasn't the first one. Oh, sorry, Three Amigos I wrote uh, with Randy Newman and uh, Steve Martin. I have a uh, copy of your IMDb if you'd like to consult it. Before yeah, we yeah, go yeah, on. yeah. No, okay. no, no, but I, I uh, that, Three but, Amigos uh, you wrote. Yes, we'd go to Steve's house every day. Randy and I, and Steve, we'd meet for lunch, talk it down, and then we'd spend the afternoon writing. And it was a very happy time for me. And what about uh, after that? What was the next film you made? Then I came back to the show. I had left SNL in 1980. Right. And then Brandon was 
threatening to cancel it, and he called me. How many years were you gone? Five years. You were gone for five years? 80 to 85. Yeah. 80 to 85. I left with the original group, designers, the musicians, the cast, the writers. Listen, in the first five years, I didn't fire one person. So when I came back, I was sort of more psychologically built for that. That it wasn't family in that sense. That the what William Shawn once called my pseudo-egalitarianism was not healthy. I had to accept that some people were not going to make it and that I'd better deal with that when it happened as opposed to just pretending... Painful it but unavoidable. Yes. And so I learned how to be a boss, which I, I, I think I'd learned how to, how to lead on some level, but I'd never learned how to be a boss. And I think when I came back um, where... You, you know, were less I, of a peer and more of a boss. Yes. And at some point, are you tempted to stop again and just go make films? It is what I do. It's the thing that... Um, but it also became, and I don't mean to be yeah. you know, glib about it, but it also became like the aircraft carrier that you launched many planes off of. Yeah, yes. This is a yeah. power base for yes, you as an yes. entertainment producer. No question. Wayne's World was the first of those. Right. With Wayne's World, I think what I wanted to prove was that I could do a movie in the same way that sort of the Marx Brothers used to do their movies. They'd tour them first. So they knew where all the laughs were, and then they could go film them quickly. Like a test. Yeah. No one believes that we do what we do here in six days, because there's not much of an approval process. Right. It just heads to 1130. Whereas in LA... That was because, my experience when I first did the show. Yeah. It was mesmerizing. Yeah, there's so much money involved. It was like in Habitat movies. for Humanity building a house. Exactly. But the movie business, because it's way better run, as is primetime television. Every paragraph is scrutinized and reviewed. And I say it every week, we don't go on because we're ready. We go on because it's 1130. <laughs> and that's just, it somehow focuses people. And I trust that process. And so with Wayne's World, I think we had, I can't remember how many days, whether it was like 27 or something like that. But Fast. towards the end, there was a plot with a father-son, which Rob Lowe was to be the son, and I was hoping for Dennis Hopper to be the father. And as we got close to shooting, which we were like three weeks away, we went, oh, so we just made it one person, we just made it Rob. You could make that kind of decision quickly. The pace of SNL was like, think of it, do it, and then think of something else. Tina says the same thing about 30 Rock television conditions those muscles where you have to make fast decisions. Yes. And that puts the creative people in charge. I did a movie with Mick Jagger based on a book we both liked called Enigma, which is about code breaking in World War II. And Michael Apted directed it. And it was an independent film. It took us six years to get it made, which was longer than World War II. <laughs> and, I, and I realized, worked on it pretty hard, but when I finally saw it, because... There was German money in it, and there was, uh, I think, Japanese. I'm looking at the start of the movie, we're at the premiere, and all of a sudden there's like, all these names are there as producers, you know? Sure. And, and I go, "What? Well, hey, excuse me. I was like, uh, and then I realized, in movies, the person who does what I do isn't at the center. Right. Here I am, and that's fulfilling. In movies, what I like doing is the script, which I get obsessive about. Because you're a writer. Yeah. And then casting, and then editing, and then how to present it to the public in the sense of marketing. Now, you 
have this great success in, uh, you have the great success in late night television. And then you have success in primetime television. You produce TV shows, particularly now, that have done uh -huh. well. And you have great success in film. But you never worked in cable. And with your career, I mean, you never worked well, aggressively I did in with, cable. I did with Kids in the Hall, and I did with, now with Fred in Portlandia, which is on IFC. Do you feel that you haven't been as aggressive in cable as you might have been? I, I think that at the end of the day, you know... Um, You're more comfortable with network. Because I've grown I, to prefer I, I network because you've got to walk that tightrope yes. and you can't just go blue and yes. go crazy. To me, there's no creativity without boundaries. If you're going to write a sonnet, it's 14 lines. So it's solving the problem within the container. And I think for me, commercial television and those boundaries, I like it. I like that you can't use certain language. I like that you have to be bright enough to figure out how to get your ideas across in that amount of time with intelligence being the thing that you're, you hope is showing, not officially, but you want it to be, oh, that was kind of bright. We have really good writers here. I think I can safely say that a lot of people in comedy did their best work here, even though sure. they might be more successful in the things they did after, well, I, more commercially successful. And also, I really believe that if you're going to stay champ, you have to take fights. And that means there's always young people, there's always people who are hungrier and more ambitious coming in, and you're working with people at the point of their career when nothing matters but the work. Right. How they live, how they're perceived. Most of the people who arrive here, their office is nicer than their apartment. <laughs> you know, And that's sort of what it's always been. And people just completely devote themselves to the show, and I think you can't do that past a certain age. You know, you have become someone who, when you genuinely talk to people about what a producer does in, in a constructive sense, and you're not trying to be, have, have a kind right. of pejorative about, you know, meddlesome and kind of attention-seeking and credit-seeking producers, you have become, you know, like one of the most important producers in the history of television. And a lot of that comes from, in I would my say opinion, in the history of the world. Well, in history, in all other universes and all other galaxies, right. yeah, wherever yeah. wherever a product is yeah. consumed around the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> but you have become. Uh, you just ruined my whole. I was trying yeah. to be so heartfelt here. Yeah. Uh, sorry, but you know it's okay. No, you're not. Sorry. I know you mean it. Um, well, but you have become someone who embodies to me what a great producer really, really is, and that is someone who. You know everyone's job, and you know when what they're doing, even in the smallest detail, when it's working and when it's not working. I, I think that what I liked, and maybe it's growing up in Canada, but the actor-manager, you know, I, I know with Shakespeare, not to put myself in the same category, that's really for others to do, but the, I know that he had to have a guy like Farley and Belushi that the audience loved, and Falstaff ends up in a play that really did, doesn't, but you know he was brought back by popular demand. And I think that when you're dealing with actors and writing and, and costume people and an audience and how you're going to get people into the Globe Theater, it's not much different. And the fact that there's the, the greatest poetry probably ever written in the English language is also in there. That wasn't what he was advertising. Producing, for me anyway, is like an invisible art. 
if you're any good at it, you leave no fingerprints. The writer wrote it. You always say that was so-and-so's script. The uh, director directed it. The star had the idea in high school. And that's kind of what it is. And you only way you prove your worth is you leave a body of work and people go, oh, that accident happened there again. That, oh, I see. So, you know, you try and get the best out of people. If you look around the room and you're the smartest person in the room, then you're in the wrong room. Right. You know, you want to get the most talented people you can find and then... Um, Bring out the best in them. Yeah. But you also have, if I may say yes. so a kind of Darwinian approach to this in the years I've been here, where you're yeah. not someone who's sitting down. I mean, you've had close personal relationships yes. and you've developed lifelong or career-long friendships with some of the most important people you've worked with. But as a rule, I, I don't see you sitting down like a father figure right. to the people here. You tend to let them slug it out and let the cream rise to the top, correct? Yes, you except view that when somebody's in trouble... But, they, I'm talking about, but during the creative process... Yeah, I think that you kind of guide it. You don't the make it. Yeah, the only way you can manage creative people is with very loose reins. I think if you're all over everything, between dress and air, you know what that meeting is like. And it's just, there's no more appeal then. This is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it. And, and everyone falls into place. But up to that point, it's kind of fractious and everybody's got an opinion and nobody likes anybody else's work. The idea that it's a variety show, by that I mean that there's a variety of styles and tastes, that there's the lowest comedy and the, and the brightest comedy and that they all coexist or that this group doesn't like that musical act and that group thinks that the joke's unupdated or they don't agree with the politics of it. That's kind of the community of it. And that's Lorne Michaels. He says he picked up his value system at summer camp. I wanted to make fair what is never a fair thing, he said show business we were a community it was just set up what was a value system do you know what i mean it was not driven by economics it was driven by if it's successful there'll be more than enough money uh hits. are you saying you're disappointed in how you've done no i'm saying i would do it exactly the same way now i, I yeah i'm alec baldwin and this is here's the thing in-depth conversations with artists, writers, policymakers, and performers. Well, I have a half a bagel in the morning with cheese. That's sort of my standard breakfast, right. and my wife gets on me for that. You can listen to past episodes at heresthething.org. Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. In just 30 seconds, have your choice of over 60 premium or seasonal cocktails, all at the touch of a button. Get $50 off on the Bartesian cocktail maker now when you buy one pack of cocktail capsules. So, for all the times you made a mess, get Mom the countertop cocktail system that makes premium cocktails without making any mess at all. 
For all the times you begged for soda, get her premium cocktail capsules made with real fruit juice and craft bitters. For all the times you demanded tacos for dinner, get her the Bartesian that mixes margaritas in just 30 seconds. Make mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit B-A-R-T-E-S-I-A-N.com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Give yourself a delicious escape from the afternoon with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Divorce is terrible. Divorce is difficult. It's a chaos. We have no rules for it. It's so incredibly painful. I think about the impact of divorce on children a lot because I'm divorced and have a daughter. Erica Zhang knows a lot about divorce. She's been married four times. Divorce was the hardest thing I ever went through. I have a friend who said to me once when he was getting divorced from his wife, who could believe that after we were in the delivery room together, after I watched that baby come out, who could believe we'd ever be apart? Both Erica and her daughter, Molly Zhang Fast, are writers. Erica is best known for her 1973 book, Fear of Flying, which ushered in the second wave of feminism. Molly, a mother of three kids herself, published her second novel, The Social Climber's Handbook, last year. What did you learn about marriage from your parents? Mom, can I answer that question honestly? Of course. No? Honesty is the only way. Well, I would say, have you seen Kramer versus Kramer? Mm -hmm. That was my general impression of marriage from my upbringing. But, you know, my mom had some good, useful suggestions, but ultimately I sort of had to find my own way, though she did eventually marry a really great guy, and they've been married for 21 years. 22. And he's a divorce lawyer. Mm -hmm. He's a practicing divorce lawyer. Yeah. He is. And Molly used to say when I married him, and then she married the one you can never divorce, the divorce lawyer. Because you can't. Is he a good guy? He's obviously. a really good guy. He's yes. a totally menschy person. And I like him better than when I married him. What was it like for you to deal with your parents' divorce, your parents' divorce, as an only child? Who did you talk to? Who did you deal with? I had with? an obese nanny from Trumbull, Connecticut. And she was my... Confidant. And you ate what, like a Everything. moon pies together? You moon ate like pies, <laughs> crumpets, those tasty cake yeah, crumpets. Yeah, ring dings, yeah. yodels. Everything. Um, I think 
I mean, Kramer versus Kramer was a great movie because that was my story. And it was a lot of kids' what stories. What about it? It was just a really gruesome 70s divorce. And that's what they had. During that time, divorce wasn't set up the way it is now. Now, if you have a divorce, there's no way that a mother is going to lose custody. Certain things are known. Back then, it was a totally unknown world of divorce. Alec, let me just, I don't want to get carried away by divorce being different in different decades, because I'm not sure that's true. Right. I think it may look that way to you, Molly, but I think divorce is a catastrophic event for children, for women, for men. It's very, very difficult to go through. It is traumatic. When you come to the other side of it, you say, I will never do that again, but, which is why I was single for nearly a decade between I, Molly's dad and, and Ken, because I wanted to make sure I would never make that mistake. But, but after you had three divorces. Yeah. You were divorced thrice. Yes. <laughs> what made you believe success was awaiting you with your current husband? How, what gave you the We courage? stamped on our wedding invitation a triumph of hope over experience. Which came as the result of what? How did you triumph? Ken had been married three times. I had been married three times. We were very cautious about tying the knot again. You were not that cautious because you'd only been together for three months when we you got both... married. <laughs> That's right. Am I right? Is she right? We married after we knew each other three months. But this, isn't it amazing? And, and it's been most successful with him. Yeah. But there are certain things about me and Ken. He's a fabulous we, guy. We grew up in similar circumstances. Our parents were Depression-era people. We knew that you couldn't be married and fool around. You couldn't be can, married and not Can I tell you the two secrets to their it? marriage? What? They have different bathrooms. Right, they each have their own bathroom. Critical, and they're tired. They're too tired to screw to it up. do new curtains and bookshelves. Yeah. The reason we got married rather than live together was because he said to me, "If we just live together, one day we'll have a fight, and you'll say I'm leaving, or I will." We have a bad record. If we get married, we know we're going to make it work. Marvin Worth. Marvin Worth. The great Marvin Worth. He was Lenny Bruce's manager, then went on to become a famous movie producer, produced Malcolm X, the movie with Spike Lee, famous uh -huh. movie producer. But he was from Brooklyn. He had the heaviest New York accent of any man I've ever heard mm -hmm. in my life. And I said to him, how did you and Joan do it? How have you and Joan been married for over 40 years? I go, what is it, you don't fight? And he said to me, uh, do Joan and I fight? We fight every day. Yeah. We fight all day. All we do is fight. Mm -hmm. He said, but then after we're done fighting... I say, Joan, I'm not going anywhere, and you're not going anywhere, so what are we going to do about this problem? I'm not going anywhere. That's what Ken and I wanted. Like, leaving is not an option. And actually, this is very funny, because he says, I'm not going anywhere, just what Marvin yeah. said. And I say, I couldn't stand anyone else. And part of it is we really make each other laugh all the time. When we have a disagreement, we always get it out there. We don't hold it in. Now that I have kids, I feel like what they don't tell you about marriage is that marriage is incredibly hard work. Molly got married at 25. 24. To, but Molly's whole uh, childhood and upbringing had been different from mine. I married my first lover, my college sweetheart. I had no experience with anybody else when I married him. That was very much my generation. Molly sowed her wild oats during college. And when she met Matt, she knew this was the man she wanted to be with. It was a totally different pattern. But I think how much wild oats did you sow? Did you travel with the stones? Did you tour with the stones? <laughs> Come on. I think I um, 
I really grew up because I got sober when I was 19. So I went to rehab when I was a teenager so that I was, until I went to rehab, very crazy. But then once that happened, I then started to focus on, you know, what was important. So by the time I got married, I was already, you know, sober a long time. My grandmother was very bohemian and my mother was very bohemian. And so were the fasts. Yeah. And they all my grandparents had open marriages. I also wanted a bourgeois life. Like, I didn't want to be bohemian. I didn't want to be single and have a boyfriend who had a motorcycle and cowboy boots. None of that appealed to me. What effect, if any, did it have on you that your mother was viewed as, and I'll let you put in the words, you know, your mother's expertise in female sexuality. What impact did that have on you when you were growing up? (laughs) Um, I think more having a mother who was very successful and working a lot had more of an effect on growing up than— because she just traveled a lot and worked a lot and felt very stressed a lot. I think that had more of an effect on me than I didn't particularly know what she did until when I was in <laughs> sixth grade. I went to this very progressive school and a little boy was like, your mom writes dirty books. I went to the science teacher and I was like, he's not allowed to say that to me. And she was like, but she does. Ah. And I was like, yeah. oh, my God, she does. But the fact that we grew up in a townhouse with a hot pink door. Purple. And that it was purple. It was dye. pink. Okay. Well, okay. Um, it was fuchsia. It was, right. <laughs> we had paintings of naked lesbians having sex on the walls. You did? Yes. Why? Because Who was mom... the artist? No, they're Ernst not famous. Schlatterer. <laughs> Schlatterer. I have a Schlatterer, but I keep it under my bed. Do you go? But when I want to get things going, you know, when I, when I want to pick it up a notch, There's I like to say, would you like to see my story. book of Schlatterer? <laughs> Relating to the erotic art. I had live-in house guests. They had lived with Shirley MacLaine. Shirley finally threw them out. They were about 100 years old at that point. (laughs) When Shirley threw them out, they came to live with me. And they gave me erotic art as a thank you. You can't imagine. The Schlatterer sisters. There was was a Larry. They're from Syosset. I went to camp with them. (laughs) They were really old-fashioned bohemians like Henry Miller. In the 60s, they had lived in Paris on the Boulevard Raspail and had orgies. That was all over. In the 70s... They went to India with Shirley and wrote about past life regression. In the 80s, they got into antioxidants before anybody knew about it. They were at the head of every curve. They were not just Had about their fingers sex. On the and they invented the iPad in 1985. <laughs> no, they did not. <laughs> I saw but drawings. I, I admired them because they were true bohemian. Now, do me a favor. Don't comment on this yet until she finishes. Okay. Describe your relationship with your mother. I, you don't know. snicker. Uh, pleasant. She's very supportive. Pleasant. What, 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 what are you talking about? Uh, she's very supportive. Is she talking about you like like she's your husband's ex? That's <laughs> no, a phrase you use. It's she's, pleasant. She's no. Judy she's, and I have a very pleasant relationship. <laughs> Affable, charming. No, my mother has always been phenomenal with me. So supportive. I don't give her things to read because she says to me. She calls me up and says, "How much of a genius are you?" She's very supportive. How would you describe your relationship with Molly? Yep. I absolutely adore her. Right. Beyond that, though. Uh, beyond she's a that, great mother. I think she's. I think she's smart. I think she's funny. I think she has incredibly good judgment. I've watched her grow. <laughs> in, in emotionally, and she has bearded some dragons that were very hard. What do you disagree about? Everything. Everything. Something. Give me something primary. 
Well, What's she, consistent? I think of her as very reactionary liberal, and I'm much more conservative in certain ways. Politically? Yeah. Do you think that you, some of your conservatism stems from your reaction to her, the kind of sexual drum she was beating throughout her I early years I wasn't beating— <laughs> Here's the no, 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 no. I, I take that back. I take Here's it back. Here's the problem. I, no, but I take that back. I that, was it was construed not, that way. You were I was not beating a sexual drum. What were you doing? Tom, in your own I words, was trying to write honestly about the way an, a young woman thinks and feels. And because our society is so curiously puritanical, yes. people took that honest book, which got inside a woman's fantasy life, her marital life, and so on, they took it as a horny book. And I am truly disappointed that the closest person in the world to me has bought into that view. But, okay, she doesn't have to be my literary critic. She's my daughter, and I love her, and she can do no wrong. I hope that someday she will read my work and see that that was not what I was doing. Daughters do torture you in a way that, I mean, that sons are not capable of, in my opinion. But I also think that my mom's legacy to me was about being honest and how important it is to be honest. And I do really hate you know, that kind of pretension or falseness. And that is something that really has been your legacy. Um, this is obviously an important subject for me because I have a daughter. Mm -hmm. And that is, what do you think of the state of female sexuality in the culture today? I think they're overwhelmed with a false image of sexuality. Before Specifically how so? Before they're emotionally ready to right. deal with it. I think they use... Their manipulation of boys' sexuality is a power trip to get even with men for the other power men have. But isn't that— I think to be a young woman today of, the, of your daughter's age is a very sticky wicket. Terrible. And I think that you really need a parent who can guide you. How would they guide them? To tell them that what they see around them in the media is not true. Because I try to do that. If I were dealing with your daughter— I would try to reassure her that this is a very confusing time of life. And, I don't, and I that just, what she sees around her is incredibly confusing. Most of the women, the young women, are as confused as she and are showing off by pretending to not be confused. And I would try to convey to her how difficult adolescence is, how many messages are coming at her at once, and how hard it is to make sense of it. That's what I would do. I plan to do that with my granddaughter, who I'm sure will say something cynical to me. But, but I also think some of it is you just as a you can't hear that kind of thing from a parent at 15. I mean, maybe there are some kids who can. I never could. Who you can know, you hear it from? I'm not entirely sure. I had a beloved child psychiatrist growing up who I really liked a lot, and I think maybe that's possible, or a teacher, or a. Maybe the parent can't really say those things. I think it's right. And I also think we don't automatically know how to behave. How do you think it's primarily different from when you wrote your earlier books? What's changed for women? The media is more all-pervasive, and the image of women is even more confusing than it's ever been. Yeah, I believe that's true. On the one hand, you're supposed to look like a fashion model retouched, and on the other hand— you're supposed to claim to a sophistication you don't and cannot have at that age. Right. And I think that women who are 14, 15 are in the most difficult position they have ever been in modern society. What do you think about that? I, 
I, I mean, I agree. I think there's a lot of sexuality. I think it's not explained to young girls in a way. I mean, Very confusing, Molly. But I think that's a legacy of the feminist movement. I mean, we said it we wanted— It is not a legacy well, of I'm the just... feminist movement. It is a legacy, and here I really feel fierce. It is the legacy of a distortion of women's desire for equal rights. Equal rights are not platform shoes and naked clothes. Equal rights— But you can't blow up an atom bomb and then choose how it's going to go. But we did not— I mean, I'm just saying Molly, we did not blow up that atom bomb. The media took our legitimate desire for equality and turned it into garbage. But they turned it into what the people wanted, first of all. I don't think so. Because it wouldn't exist if people didn't buy Britney Britney Spears. what the people want. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our sponsor, Victoria's Secret. (laughs) I disagree completely. But I also think, first of all, this is what the people want. People buy Britney Spears records because they want them. No, 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 no. no, no. See, this is what I disagree. I blame the media and I blame the entertainment industry and I blame that whole matrix for all of it. Think of the most absurd person from the past. If you took Kuntenfloss and put him on glee, he'd become a gay icon today. Cantonflas, I think, <laughs> is brilliant. If the internet had existed when Cantonflas was here, everybody would be worshiping Cantonflas. But you can't. But you can't. And it has nothing to do with feminism. You can't control what people are going to. You but know, this is like. not what people want. This is what is thrust upon them. But if, and it has nothing to do with all, feminism. First of all, you are the media. And you are the media. And I am, in some effect, the media. So we no, can't we blame. Are, no, 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 no. Wait, wait a second. I, I disagree with you. I mean, I take a paycheck from media companies to yeah. do what they pay me to do, but I'm not responsible for everything else they do. Let, let's just say this. You take the top women in entertainment, and I'm going to be generous. I'll say half. One half of them really have talent. Mariah Carey really can sing. Mm-hmm. Beyonce Knowles really can sing. But then there's the other half. They have no talent. It's all electronically enhanced. It's all about sexuality. But there sexuality. are many people who are talentless. But I think the interpretation of, 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 our, of sexuality in our culture is so twisted. Sexuality is, is true <laughs> intimacy with another person. Viagra. That sometimes results Dolls. in Why? genitals <laughs> Why? getting together and sometimes oh. does not. See, Why are you so cynical? Why are you so cynical, Molly? The woman sound awful. I'm No, sorry. she doesn't. You, you're I'm talking, talking, I'm talking, talking about, about intimacy. intimacy. You're the one saying lubricants and dolls. And- I don't even think that's sex. I think that if you have real intimacy with somebody, he can touch you here and you get excited. Oh. He can touch you on your neck he can hold your hand in the movies. Later on, I'll show you the spot I touch. It never fails. <laughs> People have no idea what sexuality really is. Bingo. We, I, I could talk with you about sex for a couple more hours. But we well, go. let's do it. Next time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Erica Zhang and Molly Zhang Fast. They say they've toyed with the idea of writing something together. Oh, yeah, many times. But both agree they never, ever will. It would be just the end of our relationship. Here's The Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo with support from Jim Briggs, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, and Monica Hopkins. Thanks to Trey Kay and Lou Okowski. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's The Thing.
You dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.